when we shut down the economy, we created a very interesting situation with demand. Um, had no demand because people were <laughs> shut out of a job. So the government gave people billions of dollars in terms of stimulus. Now, imagine this. You give people money, they run out and spend it. Never thought that would have happened, right? <laughs> so what happens is you had this tremendous surge in demand, right? So now you've got all these individuals running out. They're buying stuff. And of course, over the last couple of decades, the entire U.S. economy, really the global economy, has moved to a just-in-time type inventory level. Uh, because of the speed at which we can make deliveries now, you know, FedEx and overnight, and now, you know, pretty much the next version of Amazon Prime is if you think about it, it'll just show up on your doorstep the day before you actually think about it. That's how fast delivery is going to get ultimately. Um, but this created a, a situation where companies held a lot less inventory on hand. So where you had this big surge in demand, it created this inventory disruption because there simply wasn't enough inventory to meet this immediate surge in demand from all the stimulus. So what do companies do? They ramp up production to meet demand. Now the stimulus is running out and the demand is starting to fall. Take a look at retail sales recently, much weaker. Um, Real-time tracking of people going out into the economy, spending things, uh, you know, going out to eat, going out to games, those type of things has started to roll over here. A couple of reasons for that, obviously. First is I've been locked up for a couple of years, so as, as soon as I'm not locked up, first thing I'm gonna do, I'm gonna go out and do all the things that I haven't been able to do, but that gets old pretty quick and pretty much without money coming in the door, can't really do it a whole lot. The bill eventually comes due. So now the problem is these companies have now ramped up and this particularly goes for the inventory shortage, the chip slump that we're having right now. Not enough chips for cars to get made at this point, <clears throat> big backlog and cars to get out because there's simply no chips. That is about to reverse here. The demand is declining on the consumption side. Chips, uh, chip supplies are ramping up. And in fact, the inventories for chip manufacturers just hit a 65 year high. So again, when we get into 2022, we're likely gonna see the backup, the other side of this uh, slump in demand, which will be an inventory glut. Uh, not only in chips, but in a lot of areas of the market. So again, we've been in kind of a really strange market environment over the course of the last year. Markets up 100% from the lows, fastest doubling in history for the S&P 500. And of course, because of all the quantitative easing from the Federal Reserve, stimulus checks going in, lots of people speculating in markets, People have been buying the dips. Every time we get to the 50-day moving average, people have been buying the dips, except for last week, we actually had a sell-off in the market and investors showed up to buy the dip at the 40-day moving average because they didn't want to miss the bottom at the 50. So we're now getting to even shorter levels. And in fact, ever since the March 2020 drawdown, the level of dip buying has continued to increase. In other words, investors are buying at smaller and smaller dips as the market rises here. Um, currently, as we talked about last week and in this weekend's newsletter, which is on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, there is a, after this massive crash, in fact, CNBC headlines this morning out, the Dow coming off the worst slump in two months. Now, you really have to stretch that headline to get that dramatic to look at the slump we've had in the market over the last couple of months. Been very minor drawdowns here and again, yes, instead of hitting the 50, 
Uh, we only hit the 40 day moving average. Yes, a terrible slump, but even after that small little one and a half percent correction from the peak, the Federal Reserve blinked on Friday. Uh, Fed member Kaplan coming out saying, well, we, we may have to rethink that whole tapering thing, um, you know, particularly if the Delta variant continues to surge here. So again, uh, the Federal Reserve remains committed to supporting asset prices. Market participants know this. They're buying these dips at ever smaller levels, knowing that the Fed isn't going to let the market crash here, at least, at least at this point. But pay attention here, a couple of things here. This is the longest advance on, one of the longest advances on records without a break of the 50-day moving average and a deeper correction like we talked about last week. Right now, a 10% correction would take you back to the 200-day moving average. Again, not dramatic. That happens pretty much every year at some point. Just hasn't happened yet this year. Uh, volume continues to decline on the rallies. We're seeing volume pick up on the sell side. But on the buy side, really kind of weak volume here. Breath remains fairly poor. Again, not a lot of support here. Money flows continue to be weak here at this point. Doesn't mean that we're going to have a big correction right now, but we're getting very long into that cycle without one. And again, it's not just a function of if it's going to happen. It's just a function of when it's going to happen. And the most important thing is it'll probably catch you by surprise. So again, that's why we continue to simply talk about a little bit of risk management, just hedge your structures, make sure that you're not over your skis in terms of the amount of risk in your portfolio. Got a lot more to get into this morning. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about where the market is currently relative to history and why that's important. We'll come back after the break, pick up with that. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Don't go away. A couple of important things, though. Yes, it was. Uh, had a terrible sell-off Thursday and Friday. We were down about a whopping one and a half, almost 2% at one point. It was terrible. Um, buyers showed up as, uh, like I said, uh, Richard Kaplan from the Federal Reserve came out and said, you know, we may have to rethink this whole tapering thing. You know, this this uh, Delta variant's really starting to, to worry us a bit. And in the end, look, it's a good convenient excuse here. Um, Got to keep the $120 billion a month into the markets, particularly when you start to see consumer confidence slump. And that was something we actually talked about on Friday, something we get into in the next segment here, as well as about consumer confidence. Because it does have an important bearing kind of on kind of where we are in the cycle and, you know, the trap the Federal Reserve is getting themselves into. But, you know, one of the interesting points is out over the weekend, and we wrote an article on this as well. It's uh, on our website this morning. If you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, um, our lead article this morning is talking about the S&P 500 doubled from its low. So since March 2020, between March of 2020 and, and really last week, the, the market doubled in price. So it's up 100% from the lows. So if you bought the bottom, congratulations, you're up 100%. Most people did. Uh, the reality is, is that the market's up about 30% from where we were pre-pandemic. Still a lot. Still a lot. Um, really kind of no matter how you get around that. But that's the effect of what you, what happens when you throw $120 billion a month into the markets. And then not including that, but then you spend another 20% of GDP um, giving people checks to households. So imagine what happens. And again, we had a very nice return. But here's the interesting thing. So talking about this market doubling, you know, it's, it's a very exciting headline. Stocks plunge, worst decline in two and a half months, right? Headline, right? Market doubles in, you know, six months, eight months, 10 months. Great headline. But what does it really mean? What does it really tell you? Um, and that's what the article is about on the website today. We just had the fastest doubling of the market in history. 
So if you go back to every market low and th throughout history, you're going to find out that this was the fastest period of time that we, we made 100% gain in the markets. Now, it sounds pretty fantastic until you look at a long-term chart of when markets have doubled historically. And the important part about this chart is really kind of a couple of things. People tend to, to cherry pick start dates. They go, okay, well, you know, there was a great chart out a couple of weeks ago, and I've, I've got an article coming up on this one as well, just because this stuff kind of drives me nuts. So when I see a chart that drives me nuts, I have to write an article on it. <laughs> um, but they say, well, you know, if you just invested the markets 25 years ago, your return would have been X over the last 25 years, right? Some, you know, 12%, whatever the number is. Well, what they forget to tell you is that that's true if you had just bought the S&P in 1995 and held it to today. Yes, your your annualized rate of return would have been, you know, 10%, 12%, 6%, whatever it was. What they forget to tell you is, is that the returns were front and back end loaded because you made nice returns from 1995 to 2000, went nowhere for 13 years, and then made some money between 2013 and, and 2020. So out of the total of the last 25 years, you can do some quick math here, you only made money in 12 out of the 25 years. The rest of the time, you were just treading water. So if you were, you know, five years from retirement in 1995, you didn't make it. If you were 10 years from retirement in 2000, you didn't make it. You know, so it's important. If, if you were 15 years from retirement or 20 years from retirement in 2000, you didn't make it because you spent too much time making no money when you needed to be making 6% a year. So that's the point that always kind of gets missed. And so now we go back to this chart of this market doubling, you know, back to 1900. And, and what they kind of forget to tell you is like, well, the market doubled from the 1920 lows heading up towards 1929. True. But you had just lost almost all your money from the crash that occurred from 1900 to 1920. The market went through World War One, went through a depression and in, in heading up into in the 1917s, had a banking crisis in 1907. I mean, the first 20 years of the, of the century were terrible for financial markets. And then finally going through that and valuations got crushed. They went from 25 times earnings to like three times earnings. Then you had the, the boom of the market, right? And so coming off those extremely low valuations in 1920, heading up to 1929, yeah, you doubled the market fairly quickly. Then what they also forget to tell you is that it sounds great. And in the year following, and typically in, in the year or two following a doubling of the market, market tends to be a bit more positive sometimes. What they forgot to tell you is after the peak of 1929, you then lost all your money, literally all of it. From 1929 back to the lows in 1933, the market bottomed exactly where it was, where it started, actually a point lower uh, than where it was in 1920. You literally lost all of your gains. And by the way, if you had invested in 1905, you didn't make money until 1955. 50 years of no gains in the markets. Now think about that for a minute. 
And so this is the other problem that always people forget to tell you is that, hey, you don't live forever. You don't have the ability to go back to 1900 invest and just buy and hold it and make money. But if you go back and look at this chart of, of every time that we've doubled returns, bigger corrections tend to follow. In other words, there are things that happen typically coming off of the bottom of a market. You get returns of 100%. Markets could go higher. It's a good example. In 1987, you had a crash. And then the market rallied to 2000. And then you basically had a 50% loss. Market doubled again from 2002 to 2007, then 50% lost. And so, you know, these things happen all the time throughout market history. And again, it's, 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 it's a great headline, but you have to put these things into context. A lot of these rallies were rallying into the peaks of markets where you wound up not, not making money for a period of years. And that's just the way markets work over time. And again, yeah, I mean, any chart that you look at, and this is the this is my favorite chart. Financial advisors throw this out all the time. They throw out a chart of a market going back to 1900 and said, yeah, if you just invested your money in 1900 or, or they pick a good date like 1920, right? Start there. You made all this money. The problem is you just don't live that long. You're not going to live 100 years. I wish we could, <laughs> but you don't have that kind of investable time horizon. The investable time horizon that you have is from where you are today until you're going to need your money or be die. And for most people, that's between 20 and 40 years, give or take. And so we have to, to measure our investing based around that time frame. And so, so the point is not, should you invest? Yes, you should invest. But the point is that it depends on when you start your investing, at what point of the cycle are you in, because there's a very interesting correlation between these periods where you have a doubling of the markets and what happens elsewhere in the markets in terms of valuations. And so if we go back and look at that same chart of, of the S&P going back to 1900, Right, We have those periods of just fantastic bull market returns. And what you'll note is, is that at every point that you had those fantastic returns, you were starting at very depressed valuations. Five, six, eight, ten times earnings. And we had a, a, a very minor valuation correction in 2020 that is now back to, to the second highest level valuations on records. And, and so, so what that suggests is, is that, you know, a, a further upside in the markets has become much more challenging going forward because of what you're paying to invest in the markets. I mean, we've got stuff, we've got more stocks historically than ever trading at 10 times price to sales or more. We've got stocks that are trading 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 times, hundred times price to sales right now. And again, you know, the value that you pay is, is, or the price that you pay is the value that you're going to get over time. And, and in other words, forward returns are going to be very severely reduced over the next decade or two because of what we're, uh, you know, the payback consequence of what we're doing now. Monetary stimulus is great. It's keeping markets elevated. But it's taking more and more stimulus to create smaller and smaller rates of return. 
And as soon as you extract stimulus, the market crashes. So the, the Federal Reserve either has a choice of just, of just doing continuing stimulus, and, and that's fine, but the markets will begin to discount, as they are, the value of that liquidity, which is why it's taking more and more liquidity to generate smaller and smaller rates of return over time. So there's a payback consequence coming from this. And, and ultimately, as, as you note, going back in history, valuations are the driver for prices long term. And that's why there's such a high correlation between the price of the market ultimately and where valuations operate. And then, of course, also the correlation between valuations and forward returns. So, yeah, it's fantastic that the market doubled question is what happens next uh, when we come back uh, from the break though we'll pick up with a little bit on this consumer confidence crash and uh, what the fed's going to do about it and why the fed's all of a sudden starting to waffle on taper we'll talk about that when we come back from the break i'm your host Lance roberts don't go away in 2010 ben bernanke came out and this was so coming right out of the bottom in 2009 the, the market bottomed in 2009 the financial crisis in march and the fed the federal reserve launched what was called at that time this new method of monetary policy un, un before never seen called quantitative easing the fed started throwing 900 billion dollars into the market over the course of the next year to try to get the market going again, get the economy going again after the financial crisis. Of course, on top of that, we were doing, you know, $800 billion and um, bailouts, and we are doing another, you know, HAMP and HARP and cash for clunkers and all kinds of stuff. But $900 billion spread out over the course of several months from March until May of the following year, the Fed was going to be buying these bonds. I'm going to keep just keep these numbers in mind, $900 billion. Of course, as we approached May of 2010 and quantitative easing started to end, markets started to decline. Consumer confidence fell. And Ben Bernanke at that point came out in September and said, hey, you know what? We're going to do another round of QE, $1.2 trillion this time for the next year from September until May of the following year. We're going to do this $1.2 trillion in total over that time frame. The reason, he says, is to lift asset prices in order to spur consumer confidence. Consumer confidence, of course, important for getting people to go out and spend money in the economy. So if consumer confidence is lifted by higher asset prices, then what should happen theoretically is you get stronger economic growth. Sounds completely great. Markets take off again, start to rise, as expected, because you're providing liquidity straight to the banks to buy assets, and consumer confidence increased. In fact, if you take a look at this chart that I have uh, in our article, so this article is out on Friday. It's on the website. If you're driving right now, don't try to you know look at charts while you're driving. I'll explain it for you. Go back later to the website, Real Investment Advice. Click on Friday's article uh, talking about consumer confidence. It says it's called, did the Fed's monetary policy experiment just fail? Because when you take a look at consumer confidence, 
versus the financial markets. There's a very, very high correlation from 2009 to 2018. Now, importantly, and, and to his point, and, and to Bernanke's credit, if you take a look at consumer confidence versus personal consumption expenditures. Now, PCE, personal consumption expenditures, is 70% of the GDP equation. So when we talk about GDP, 70% of that number is what you and I spend on a daily basis. Not surprisingly, there's a very high correlation between consumer confidence and you spending money. Imagine that, right? You feel very confident about things. You think your job's secure. You've got money coming in. You're going to spend money. So Bernanke's point was right. So in 2009, we do quantitative easing one. 2010, we do QE2. Then after QE2 ends, the market falls off again. And Bernanke comes out and says, okay, we're going to do this thing called Operation Twist because we're just going to kind of, you know, shift some things around the balance sheet, but not really do QE. But it was kind of a stealth QE at the time because money was still flowing into assets and markets responded ordinately. Not nearly to the level that they got with QE, but they held up. And then, of course, that was about the time that we got in this whole debt ceiling debate issue and there was concerns about us defaulting on our debt. They downgraded our debt rating here. At the same time, Japan's getting wiped out by a, a, an undersea earthquake, tsunami, tidal wave, Godzilla ramping up as, as you know a nuclear power plant fails. I mean, just a disaster in Japan impacted manufacturing, et cetera. So the concerns over a slowing economic environment, this debt ceiling issue, led to Ben Bernanke starting QE, another version of QE, really in late 2012, heading into 2013, because he was worried about what was called the fiscal cliff happening. So now we start doing this kind of unending QE this time. There was no kind of end date to it. And all this liquidity came into the market, but the fiscal cliff never happened. And so markets took off. Finally, in 2015, 2014, 2015, we finally decided to start tapering that off, and the, and the market started to decline again. You had a two 20% corrections in 2015, 2016, and ben, um, Janet Yellen now, who has now replaced Ben Bernanke, she gets on the phone with the ECB and, and the Bank of England and says, you guys better do something. And this is right at the bottom of the market in um, early 2016 as the fears of Brexit were surging. So the ECB jumps in with their version of QE. We kind of sit tight this time. And the flood of liquidity from the ECB and the Bank of England lift markets again. We then get into 2018. The market starts to stumble. The Fed starts trying to hike rates. Everything comes apart at the seams. And all of a sudden, we're back to zero rates. And, and starting a version of QE by bailing out repo at the time. This is in 2019. And then, of course, with March of 2020 comes along, we start QE for $120 billion a month. And we're still doing that now, over a year later. So that's the history. Here's the problem. Up until 2018, this all worked. Monetary policy worked until 2018. 
where it didn't work is that it didn't ever create economic growth. In fact, if you take a look at wages, the total increase in the Fed's balance sheet, a 1,000% increase in the Fed's balance sheet, you had a 40% increase in wages since 2009. Full-time employment, a 1,000% increase in full-time employment, a 12% increase, uh, sorry, a 1,000% increase in the Fed's balance sheet, a 12% increase in employment. It took $86 of Federal Reserve balance sheet to create a job. Corporate profits. Fed's balance sheet up 1,000%. Corporate profits up 110%. GDP, since 2009, Fed's balance sheet up 1,000%. GDP up 57%. In other words, the return on investment for these trillions of dollars spent in the economy through the Federal Reserve balance sheet and quantitative easing have not done what the Federal Reserve said. Yes, it's had a tremendous impact on financial assets. In fact, we've, we've gone through before exactly just how fabulously well that the top 1% of the economy has done versus everybody else. The markets are up since the peak of the market in 2007. The market is up 198% from the peak of the market in 2007. Sales growth for the S&P is up 49% and GDP growth is up 23%. Return on investment, extremely poor. Wealth gap is a major problem. But as I said, the question here really becomes is did what, what happened here recently? Because all of a sudden, monetary policy no longer seems to really be working. Not to that degree. We're supposed to be lifting asset prices, and when we lift asset prices, then all of a sudden, um, you know, the the you know consumers spend more and everybody feels better. But that didn't happen. In fact, when we take a look at consumer confidence versus just what happened in the last couple of months, going back to March of 2020, we had a massive decline in consumer confidence. While the market has doubled from the March 2020 lows, consumer confidence is basically nearing back the lows to where we were during the middle of the pandemic shutdown. All of a sudden, that high correlation between consumer confidence and asset prices has broken. Now, the Fed's still committed to doing more QE. Every time the market corrects, the first, their first response is, well, we better not do QE. Uh, we better not taper QE. We better keep doing it. The problem for the Fed is twofold. One, it never really impacted economic growth. It never created the economic growth that we were promised. Yes, we've, we've made the wealthy fabulously wealthy. 80% of the economy doesn't participate in financial assets. And are you surprised that consumer confidence is declining? The problem for the Fed is, is they're now in the trap. You can't extract taper without collapsing the financial markets, which would indeed reduce consumer confidence when people start losing what little money they do have invested. But yet their confidence overall is back at pandemic lows because they can't make ends meet. Inflation 
is eating them alive right now. Be right back after the break. Don't go away. Uber and Lyft shares are getting hit this morning after a California judge um, struck down Proposition 22. And now this was something that these companies, the ride-sharing companies, spent about $200 million to promote is this Prop 22. And that exempted gig economy workers from state labor laws, um, which would force Uber and Lyft to provide benefits. And, and we've talked about this problem before. This is the whole problem with the $15 hour minimum wage um, and a variety of these other worker type laws that, that get proposed. When companies hire people, what is forgotten is the cost that it requires to hire somebody. So here's a good example. I hire Brent for a job, and I'm going to I say, Brent, I'm going to pay you $50,000 a year to do this job. I know that sounds like a lot of money, and it is, but I need a nice round number I can work with. <laughs> Reality, it's probably worth about ten. But let's let's go to $50,000. So I pay, I pay Brent $50,000 a year. See, it's not just $50,000. I'm not just outlaying $50,000 a year for Brent. I've also got to provide Brent a studio to work in, equipment to work on, I've got to provide him a space. Um, that's also an additional cost. Then I have to provide him because, you know, he's an American and he thinks he's entitled to these things. Things like health care. You know, because he believes health care is a right. It's not a privilege. So we have to now provide him health care. Now, I don't really have to provide him health care. I only provide him health care benefits because I have to compete with other employers who will. So I'm not mandated to, to provide these things, but if I want to hire Brent, I've got to provide for his health care cost, which is very expensive. Health care costs have been going up ever since we've uh, passed the Affordable Care Act at an extreme level because we have really just screwed up the entire health care system now. Trying to fix it, by the way. Um, then, imagine this, he wants a 401k plan with a match. Got to add that into the cost. And then he wants these things like vacation days, paid time off, sick leave, paternity leave, maternity leave for Brent. Um, he wants all these things, right? It's cost. So this is the problem with all of these ideas. It, it, it drives up the cost of labor. And this is why we outsource so much of our labor to other countries that what? Don't require that. We talked about Greg Hayes with Carrier before. He, you know, with that, they had the plant in Mexico that, in order to appease the Trump administration, they moved the small plant to Indiana. Um, when they asked him about why he had the plant in Mexico, he says, "Well, because the workers work for five dollars an hour. They don't ask for time off. They show up. They work twelve-hour days, and they don't complain, and they don't want benefits, health care, vacation, all these other things." It's very, and that's why we export labor. It's a, it's a way to lower the cost because if we manufactured here in the U.S. like we did back in the 50s and the 60s when the economy was booming here, you couldn't afford anything. You talk about inflation now, wait until you try to buy a car in the U.S. and it's $90,000 for a, you know, a, a Volkswagen, right? Bug. You know, your TV is no longer $150 at Walmart. It's $1,500 at Walmart. That's, you've got to pay for those costs at some point. There's not a free lunch here. 
So as we've explained before, we export inflation to deep to import deflation. We export the highest cost of production, labor, to import cheap products. Export inflation, import deflation. And that's how you get the things that you want. And that's why you shop on Amazon. And that's why everything that you buy on Amazon says made in China. But this was the, this is, and, and this just goes to show you the problem for Uber and for Lyft, these ride-sharing companies. Proposition 22 said, I can just pay them as a 1099 contractor. In other words, I pay Brent 50000 He's on his own for everything else. He's got to provide his own health care, his own 401k, his own savings. He's, he, he's got to pay his own taxes. I don't even have to pay taxes. Which, is, by the way, that's another cost as an employer because I also have to pay my share of Payroll taxes, FICA, FUTA, all that stuff. So to hire Brent in the U.S. for $50,000 cost me $75,000 as an employer. And see, people forget about this. And that's why Uber and Lyft are trying to encourage, and they spend $200 million to get Prop 22 passed in California because they don't want to have to pay all this extra stuff to their employees because guess what? If they do, your Uber ride is going to double in price. All of a sudden, people have to rethink about this whole idea of, oh, I'm just going to Uber here and there. It's not so cheap anymore. Maybe people go back to using a taxi. <laughs> but they just lost. A judge has, a California judge has struck down Prop 22. Interestingly enough, right at the time that Uber's registering 25 million shares for sale, this should work out well. Um, <laughs> the California judge, uh, Judge Frank Roche, issued a ruling on Friday and determined that Propositions 22's provisions covering workers' compensation law and collective bargaining in future gig work violate the state's constitution. Now, Uber came out and said, well, the ruling ignores the will of the overwhelming majority of California voters and defies both logic and law. Not really. The law is pretty clear. U.S. labor law is really clear about this. If I hire Brent as an employee and he spends 100% of his time working for me, he cannot be a contract employee. So, the law is pretty clear. If I drive for Uber and only drive for Uber alone, then I can't be a contract employee. And that's why you see a lot of Uber drivers also drive for Lyft, also drive for FedEx, also drive for UPS, also drive for Amazon. You know, they have multiple gigs. And this, and, and by the way, all those multiple gig worker guys, they don't show up in the unemployment, the, um, uh, the employment rules. We talk about labor force participation. But this is going to be an interesting uh, um, outcome. But the point, the point of the, the conversation is not about the law. I don't really care about that. The point is why this is important, which is the cost of labor. And so when you start bemoaning this idea that, you know, we need to pay $15 an hour. Hey, I got it. I, I completely understand that there is a, my, my kids work for less than $15 an hour, 
right? They bemoan to me every time I take money out of their account to pay for their car note. <laughs> it's not fair. I know, isn't being an adult a pain in the butt, having to pay bills? But this is what it's worth. And, and what my kids are learning by working for a low wage is the most important lesson that they don't want to work for a low wage. All of a sudden, my daughter, who previously was thinking about going to school to get some degree, you know, college to get some degree in some obscure thing, all of a sudden is talking about getting an economics degree or a finance degree. Why? Because she doesn't want to work for low wages. There is no such thing as a minimum wage. Your minimum wage is zero. That is what you bring to the table. Your wage is based upon what you contribute to the business. Minimum wages are not designed to be a living wage. This is the great lie from the media. If you want to have above minimum wage income, develop a skill, go to school, get an education, work hard, be diligent, learn on the job, and you can work yourself out of minimum wage. There is no employer on the planet that says, I'm going to keep Brent at minimum wage if he shows up every day, works hard, contributes, and becomes a valued employee of my company. I want to keep him, and to keep him, I will pay him more. If you're stuck working at minimum wage for years, that's not the employer's problem. That's your problem. And this is the thing that we don't talk enough about, is that if we want to have people not working for minimum wage, which is an entry-level trial position, is a trial. It is to see if you are the type of person that I want to employ long-term, that I want to commit those expenses to to grow, develop, to train. That's the thing we should be. That's the message that we should be delivering is that if you don't want minimum wage, we'll help you get a better education, not demand that employers pay you more so they outsource that labor or automate it, making our long-term employment situation worse. Have a great day. We'll be back tomorrow for the next edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Get by our website, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Both of our latest articles we discussed today on the website now, talking about confidence, the failure of monetary policy, and the market doubling on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you tomorrow. It's a rich man's world.